Hello, and welcome to the Seventh Petro Nerds Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis, and I will be your host for this podcast and many others to follow. There's a lot happening in the marketplace today. Oil prices have been range bound in this 40s and low 50s for quite some time. And yet there's still a lot of question marks uh, around what's going on around the world. We have issues surrounding North Korea. We have questions about global balances in 2018 that have sort of suppressed oil prices, um, including the OPEC agreement rolling off um, in the first quarter of next year, as well as um, U.S. productivity gains, really uh, adding question mark to how much production will be added um, throughout this year and next year. In addition to all that, oil company stocks have been getting hit largely because oil prices have been 52-week range between um, 58 and sort of low 40s. Uh, and it's, it has been relatively erratic, and it hasn't necessarily reflected fundamentals that have t- happened in the market. And there isn't really a, a risk premium being taken into account for um, global some of the global issues that we mentioned. And there is a lot of concern on, on 2018 balances. But there are some skeptics out there that are starting to breathe new concern uh, with regards to shell operators. And they're um, sort of some of the logic is 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 thinking about debt, free cash flow, and the ability to really secure additional financing. And we haven't seen a, a real problem, yeah, a tangible problem in securing financing. But there is talk, um, and I would say some of this is out of London, about whether or not these shale operators are going to be able to continue to secure access to financing. So the arguments um, that some people are linking, I mean, we've, we've seen the analogies of U.S. shale operators being compared to tech companies. There's been articles written about these companies in the Wall Street Journal comparing them to tech companies. Now, a lot of tech companies are cash flow positive. Um, we are seeing them turn off a lot of cash. But they're also the case that there are a lot of tech companies that are not cash flow positive. And it was the other night when I was coming back from a football game, um, the CSU-CU game, CU1. I was coming back from that football game and trying to catch an Uber back home. And I was thinking about Uber. Um, this is not a publicly traded company. But we know that everybody uses the service. Uh, or a lot of people at least use the service. And we also know that they are not free cash flow positive and they have, uh, they spend a ton of money and yet they're uh, intrinsic part of, of fabric and society. And they, they, you know, they're not publicly traded, but they are telling people they're eventually going to make money. Now, Netflix is also an integral part of um, a lot of people's lives. I use it regularly. Uh, this is something that, this is a, a stock that is publicly traded and they are not free cash flow positive and they do burn through a lot of money. And the game plan is in the future that they, they will be. Now, there's a lot of arguments be made against shale operators and that they have been at this game for quite a while um, and that they should be making money now. And we'll get into some of these arguments because I think they're important to talk about of, of how some folks look at this industry um, and some of the counter arguments. And we're going to play devil's advocate here with some of these questions. But the other logic is that um, the shale industry is young and it's it's very infant. And this this industry needs time to grow and flourish. And therefore, it's going to have um, it's going to have some growing pains. It's going to have debt. It's going to have um, negative free cash flow. Uh, but eventually, it will sort of grow its way out of this. Now, there are a number of reasons um, and a number of arguments sort of against this, and I think we're going to go through them and and talk about why I I disagree with a lot of them. Uh, I think that the industry, um, there are a lot of companies and operators that shouldn't be um, spending probably as much as they're spending. Um, And we have to, you can't look at their spending or their free cash flow or anything like this in a vacuum. Um, The operator itself needs to be looked at in terms of the 
the quality of their acreage, what reservoirs they're in, what plays they're in, um, what does their well performance look like? And there are a lot of operators that their balance sheets might not look stellar, but their acreage looks great and their wells are doing great. And these are really important points. Um, and it, it isn't, there's a flashy term that people are growing your way out of this. Um, and it, it, it's not true for every operator, but I think it's important um, that strong assets do matter. And I think this is a long-term game. Um, and one of the reasons I say that is because We've talked about this in, in many podcasts previously in our, our last podcast on Fraxan, but we're sort of really just scratching the surface on these technological gains. Um, we're continuing to research on that, and we, we really believe it. Um, on the technological advances, so if you if you set debt and cash flow and all these issues aside, um, in terms of what the reservoir can give you and the technological growth, I think it's um, we're we're sort of in exponential territory. Now there there can be some constraints, and we may very well see some of those in 2018 on that could throttle some of this back. However, so. One of the arguments um, against why this analogy of um, this shale industry being young and it's developing this new business model and it might take years to generate cash flow uh, and that it's similar sort of the tech industry um, where tech companies took a while, but then they started generating growth um, and, it, you know, they sort of sur surpassed other, other companies and technologies who had failed to innovate. Um, some arguments against this, against this are that the shale companies are actually price takers. So they're selling a commodity into the open market and they are, um, tech companies are price setters. So within the bounds of their competition, uh, they're sort of developing unique um, intellectual property um, and they aren't selling exactly the same thing as their competitor. Now, I would disagree with this argument because I think that shale operators are creating um, their own intellectual property. I think we could say that um, certainly the service providers are also playing a role in this. Um, I think they're, they're actually probably less folks that are as um, intimately focused on sort of frack technology um, and you know, fluid flow and exactly what's happening in the reservoir than we may believe. But I do believe there are quite a few operators who are cha literally changing the game and pioneering major ch step changes in the industry um, that is changing the way we're, we're um, extracting oil. And then, yes, it's been copied by, by other operators in, in sort of a simplistic manner. But the, the truth is that the simple copying is actually, we're seeing positive increases in, in wealth performance by by simple copying so an operator like EOG or Pioneer may be doing intense reservoir imaging um, precision lateral targeting they're doing really a great geo steering and they're getting their um, their well bores and their, their targets right in zone um, and therefore when they're fracturing that with multiple um, you know stages and they're doing their high intensity completions with with thousands of pounds of sand uh, per lateral foot and and a, a ton of a fluid as well, um, that they're getting a, a big return, whereas some of their peers might be just drilling longer laterals, um, adding more intense uh, profit levels and also um, more intense uh, fluid levels. But we are also seeing some gains from that as well. Now, could those gains be better? Perhaps. Um, but the point is, is that these uh, these companies, a lot of them would argue that they are driving the intellectual property, that they, they aren't simply letting the service company come in and do something for them, um, that they truly understand the reservoir, they're increasing their knowledge of the rock and the reservoir, and therefore um, they have an intellectual property on that. Um, I would certainly say with, with when you read through Pioneer's, Pioneer Natural Resources earnings call, as well as EOG's earnings call, they talk so much about tech um, that I, I would say they would completely disagree with this. Now, 
Now, that being said, they're the two of these uh, many, many other companies. Um, and you don't hear a lot of other companies talk directly about those types of things. But I would say that um, there are a lot of companies outside of those guys, smaller companies that are that are pioneering their own technologies and are doing a lot. And I would say that they're their knowledge of the rock and reservoir and their assets um, makes them unique in, in their space um, and gives them advantage over their competitors. So another argument against this, against these operators or um, in, in this sort of comparison is that um, shell companies must buy their acreage, right? They have to purchase, um, they have to acquire acreage of land and this can cost millions or billions of dollars. Um, so there is a buy-in cost and we have to recognize that. And then there's um, the argument that there's limited drilling inventory. So you're obviously buying a certain amount of acreage and you can only drill so much. Um, and that the ability to expand this is limited by your capital, the operator's capital and their leaseholding. Um, and that you essentially have to buy, um, you have to buy acreage or in assets to drill at all. Um, so therefore you're a price taker or these operators are price taker as far as the land and mineral costs go. And they're subject to sort of land rushes and um, you know, inflated prices or, or speculative bubbles in some of these assets. And, and some would go along with saying that the, the Southern Delaware saw a lot of that, um, as well as other parts of the Permian Basin, which are actually still seeing it. Um, and so you have the inflated land costs that they should aren't necessarily reflecting reality, especially the price environment. I'd say the counter argument to this is that um, we are, well, we are seeing more, uh, I would say I'm hearing more skeptics talk about that we are still seeing limited um that the drilling inventory is limited and that um, sort of the high grading is um, is running out. And we, we heard a lot of this in actually in 2015 um, and actually right in the downturn in 2014, uh, the skeptics were everywhere calling out saying, you know, high grading and high intensity completions just aren't going to work. That pumping lots of sand and um, drilling your best acreage, it's flash in the pan and it will eventually die. Now, clearly that wasn't true, but we are seeing sort of a renewal of that type of thinking. Um, and it, it's it's coming along with the, the sort of cash flow uh, worries as well. Um, but I think this this understanding of the land, this purchasing land, yes, you're purchasing um, expensive land. In the Permian, the logic is that there is um, multiple stack formations um, and that over time, these operators will delineate those assets and that um, they will get the pay from those. I, I would say that the knowledge of a lot of these reservoirs is growing. And as you increase your knowledge of your reservoirs, you're able to understand um, exactly where to place your, the best lateral placement and the best acreage spacing and um, therefore the best drainage of your reservoir. Uh, the more we understand this, uh, the more we can precisely put, you know, wells next to each other or tier them in, in different reservoirs and sort of stack them. I mean, we're seeing that here in the DJ Basin where operators are going to the Codel um, and the Niobrara A, B, and C. Um, we're seeing that in the Permian Basin and, and we see in the Eagle Ford where we see sort of these these wine-racked formations uh, or these wine-racked uh, wells that um, that are then fracked and, and they sort of work that way. I think we're, we're still early on in that. Um, you know, you don't always see, we think of when people talk about pad drilling and we hear an operator say, 17 wells or 20 wells per pad that's not everywhere so a lot of our operators are just trying to you know they're they're starting this and especially in the permian basin it's still very new in like the southern delaware where operators are de-risking assets they are um putting a few wells maybe together or, or a well here and a well there and they're de-risking those assets so you're not seeing you know 20 wells yet on a pad in parts of the southern delaware you know for certain operators in parts of the southern delaware so that's really important and 
and it is going to take those operators time uh, to delineate those assets. And a lot of those operators did pay a significant amount of money for that acreage. So that is important. Um, and I would say some of the skeptics have a point there, at least for some operators in certain parts, that, um, but they're going to need some time. So one, if, if it's new acreage, if it didn't come with, um, if it didn't come with existing production, uh, you don't, one, you didn't buy any existing production and assets go with it. So it's, it's all new. And we talked about that in some of our previous podcasts that um, we've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater on and buying existing production. And, and it's all about, you know, just acreage and, and hoping it works. And I think there, there should be, there is some natural concern there and there should be, but I think you should take it with a grain of salt. Um, and it, operators who, um, you know, really are, are doing these sort of bolt-on acreage positions that make sense, I think that does make sense. And so I think the, you know, also the knowledge side is you're increasing that knowledge and you're understanding your assets and maybe you're not purchasing too much at a time, um, you can delineate that better. And I think you can sort of change, um, you can make that worth your while. But I think paying attention to costs of how much it's, how much you're purchasing for the, that acreage is really important. So I think part of this argument we could we could say between the the shale sector and if we were saying that you know comparing shale operators to the tech space is that you know uh, a skeptic or somebody on the other side might say if you're if you're in the tech space um, it's one thing to burn a bunch of cash to sort of conquer a sector um, as we saw Amazon sort of you know buy everything and take over to sort of conquer that sector and defeat areas. Um, and then sort of own the space and create revolutionary products. Um, whereas the argument against shale operators would be that they're just an oil company and they are um, they're drilling wells and they're bringing a commodity to market. Um, and that there's no sort of uh, this intellectual IP isn't isn't a part of this. Now, here's where I really disagree. And here's where I think we can we can make a, a, an argument um, for shale operators here. And that's that the wells that are being drilled today in the U.S. Um, by many of these shale operators are very different from a well that was drilled, um, you know, 20 years ago in Africa by a sta- by a regular oil company or a major oil company. Um, this isn't, uh, you know, you're we're not in the Middle East, um, so this isn't the the oil isn't easy to get out to the ground. Um, it isn't super low cost, and that's important. That's why we're talking about this. It's not low cost, and so it does take a, a great amount of technology technological innovation to do this. Um, And it isn't as simple as just drilling vertically, drilling horizontally, um, drawing a perfect 90 degree angle, uh, drilling like that, and then hydraulic refracturing these reservoirs and getting the oil out of ground. And I think that's how it's explained to a lot of people. I think that's how the public understands it. Um, But I think it's it's really you're, um, you're putting a whole system down hole, um, including cement and tubing and casing, and you're you're creating a well um, down hole, and you're trying to keep it in zone, and then you're you're fracturing this um, in a in a really creative way to extract oil out of this rock, and I think it's a completely different business um, in this sense than it was in years past, especially from conventional to unconventional. And I think that's a really important characterization to, to make and to understand of why it's different from oil in the past is that it has to be innovative in order to survive. And yes, at the moment, it's it's not perfectly cash flow neutral or, or cash flow positive, although some operators are there. Um, so I think it's important to make that distinction that I, I think it is different. Uh, the other thing is that, so who really holds the, the intellectual property? Um, in the tech 
space that's a big deal of, of sort of who holds it and and there's lots of debates and fights over that but but individuals obviously that's that's a big thing they're doing so in the shell sector um a skeptic would say well who holds it it's maybe it's just the service providers that are doing all that and i think obviously operators would completely disagree um service providers do a lot so i think there's some some great companies um um here in denver especially and they're they're working hard to keep uh to increase efficiency gains so that they can go to the operators, um, try to increase costs, you know, to make them sustainable, but also uh, to make the operators happy to where they're producing more. That's really where we're sort of trending on the service side um, that it has to go. But the operators themselves would say that they're not doing this just with the service providers. So even though if you you read through maybe a Schlumberger earnings call and they talk about all these you know, these innovative things that they're doing and um, what they're selling to the, the sectors, um, not just shale, but others, um, it doesn't mean that the operators aren't doing anything themselves. So it, it does go hand in hand. And I would say that um, operators are working aggressively on um, making sure they, they own their own intellectual property on their reservoirs um, and that they, they know them differently than their peers. Um, and I think a lot of this has to do with, with what some operators would, would say is in their secret frack sauce of, of exactly what types of propent they're using, what types of fluid, um, and how exactly they're fracturing their wells. So I think really you're going to have you're going to have folks on both sides of this argument, and I think um, inte- intelligent people are going to be able to argue it both ways. But I think it's it's important to realize that um, when when we're looking at the actual reservoirs and we're looking at the production that's coming from these reservoirs and we're looking at the different types of operators that are operating within them, and that we're seeing productivity gains sort of across the board. Um, in many of these places, and we're seeing it um, in the Permian Basin, and we see it in the Powder River, we're seeing it in the Bakken, we're seeing it in the Eagle Ford. Um, it, it's telling us that the reservoir is giving us more oil. Now, that's partly because we're, operators are obviously doing a better job overall fracturing and pulling this out, but it, it's also telling us that these these operators have, they've increased their intelligence and their know-how to do this. Um, the service providers have played a role in that. Um, but it's really, it, it's telling us that we're at the beginnings of sort of scratching the surface. So we're increasing the amount of oil that we're recovering from these reservoirs. And I think we can, obviously, these, these operators can do more with that. Um, but the question is, can they do this within um, within the bounds of, of proper capital expenditures, um, the amount of financing that they can bring in, um, as well as, uh, you know, getting free cash flow neutral or, or at least reducing reducing negative free cash flow um, and starting to turn a profit. And I think that's, um, that's where things get tricky. And the timing of that isn't going to be the same for every operator. Okay, so at this point, I think it's important to start talking about the health, um, the financial health of these operators and how they stack up. So in a shameless pitch for a product we are launching uh, called Hedgeware, we're going to discuss some of this data, both hedging data and financial data. Our product, Hedgeware, um, is available. We can schedule a demo anytime by reaching out to us. We'll talk about this at the end of the podcast. Um, but this tool has over 40 or has 40 operators, US shale operators included, and it covers um, about 3 million barrels a day of US shale production and over 25 billion cubic feet of gas a day. So we're, we're covering the production of these operators, and it includes every single he- derivative position, so every hedge position of these operators. And really, you have two basic hedges in place, and hedges have become 
quite a big uh, talking point in the industry lately. So we're hearing operators discuss it in their earnings calls and explain um, how well hedged they are. We're hearing um, service companies like Schlumberger talk about it. And we're hearing more and more analysts really talk about uh, the role of hedging um, in the marketplace right now, given the the dynamic between OPEC and the U.S. and the importance of uh, U.S. producers hedging and locking in in prices um, above $50 a barrel or near $50 a barrel so they can continue to drill and complete wells. Um, And that sort of locks them in and, and allows them to to keep prices uh, to be to keep healthy prices through through derivatives, um, while OPEC sort of goes and does their own thing, and that's that's really what's helped keep prices muted for a while. So, the two main forms of option or the two main forms of derivatives um, that we're looking at now, at, this product includes every derivative that each operator has, so every hedge position each operator has for gas oil, and natural gas liquids. But the two main types are a fixed price swap and um, and an option with a two-way collar or a three-way collar. And your fixed price swap is essentially an agreement between two parties. So it's the, the operator is one party and you have a counterparty and you're agreeing to sell this um, this this derivative at a, at a certain fixed price. The option on a two-way collar or three-way collar is just another way to, to protect risk to keep your um, to lock your prices into a range. So you have a ceiling price, um, a floor price, and sometimes you have a, a three-way collar where you have a subfloor. Um, and Pioneer Natural Resources had mentioned this on their earnings call, um, their Q2 earnings call, I think, of some ceilings at 59 and, and floors at 39. So they sort of lock themselves in this range bound. And we're seeing this because operators are um, sort of looking out at the market and wanting to hedge the risk. We saw a lot of a pretty aggressive hedging in in 2016. So our product goes back and looks at goes backdates um, to the first quarter of 2016, and we saw quite a bit of aggressive hedging then. And part of that was because um, prices were erratic um, in early 2016, and and producers sought to start locking in um, hedges then. Now, so if we if we look at the actual hedges in place right now, so for the rest of 2017, for um, the the next two quarters, there's over 550,000 barrels a day of the producers we're covering. So of the 3 million barrels a day that we're covering, um, that's 3 million barrels a day out of basically the 4.7 or 4.8 million barrels a day of U.S. shale production. Of that 3 million barrels per day, uh, these uh, operators have hedged over 550,000 barrels a day at over $52 a barrel. Now, um, nearly $53 a barrel. Uh, that's a, a pretty significant number, um, and it gives these operators sort of a nice buffer for when we saw prices drop into the low 40s. Um, some of the reason why the sky wasn't falling out is because of this. If we look into um, 2018, there's over 300,000 barrels a day currently hedged for, um, from Q1 to Q4 of 2018. Um, at over $52 a barrel. So obviously, as we look out, um, there are less hedges into the future for on these fixed price swaps. Um, but we can we can look in the next quarters to probably see more and more operators locking in prices. Another form of hedging, um, as I mentioned, another option is a is a collar. Um, we have every other derivative on here and different options, but the one I'll explain, the other one I'll explain today is, is these are, are collars that were put in place. And there's two-way and three-way collars, and three-way collar has a subfloor. But for simplistic purposes, we'll talk about um, the volumes that are currently hedged in 2017 uh, with the the ceiling and the floor price. And so. Basically, as I mentioned before, this is locking in um, locking in a price range. And so there are over 600,000 barrels a day that is currently hedged um, through these, these color options with um, a ceiling price, 
of over $60 a barrel and a floor of roughly $49 a barrel. So really not that bad of a range, um, especially with that ceiling price. There are some subfloors in there that are much lower. Now we're going to talk about the financial health of these operators. So in our Hedgeware tool, we have a financial metric section, and you can look at financial data of all these, these 40 operators and how they stack up to one another, or you can see them individually. And the, the information is backdated to the first quarter of 2016. So two metrics that we're going to talk about today that are important, and we sort of mentioned them earlier, is, is free cash flow and capital expenditures. And the reason we're going to talk about free cash flow is because there's been a, a little more attention paid um, um, or a little more attention given to um, the free cash flow of these operators. And there are folks on Wall Street wanting to know when these operators are going to become free cash flow positive. Now, free cash flow, by definition, is really a measure of a company's financial performance that's calculated as your operating cash flow minus capital expenditures. And free cash flow represents the cash that a company is able to generate after spending the money required to maintain or expand its asset base. So it's an important number, and it's something that, um, you know, it's important to pay attention to. Now, there are a lot of operators that are... Um, that are not free cash flow positive. So, um, or, or the lot of operators that basically have negative free cash flow. Now, the point here is that lots, the, most of the industry at the at the moment um, has negative free cash flow. But I think folks are looking to see whether or not they have a path um, to get free cash flow positive. Um, so, are they going to become free cash flow positive in the future, or is there a path uh, toward that? And that's the important component here. So if we look at our data and we look at what the industry looks like right now, and we sort of look at the, from the first quarter of, of 2016 to the second quarter of 2017. In the first quarter of 20, 2016, as a whole of the 40 companies that we're covering, uh, these operators had about over $9 billion in negative free cash flow. So there was just a few operators that were um, free cash flow positive. Uh, if we look at the second quarter and third quarter of 2016, that's where we saw a lot of um, the financial health of these operators really Im improve. Um, so as a whole, the, these these operators, these 40 companies, when we're looking on a net basis as a whole, um, they, they were almost free cash flow neutral. So um, there were about... Um, on the positive side, there was about two billion dollars positive in the in the third quarter, um, and uh, that equated uh, almost knocked out all the all the negative free cash flow. So as a whole, they were almost neutral. And the reason why the free cash flow was was much better in the second quarter and third quarter of 2016 was. Uh, a big component was that service costs were so low. So frac send costs were very cheap. Um, I believe Parsley had made a comment in the earnings call that frac send costs were essentially, or frac send was essentially free. So that was a component of, of why things, free cash flow got a lot better um, in those quarters. And then we saw that really change uh, in the in the fourth quarter of 2016, uh, free cash flow really, really took a dive. Um, so that most of these operators had negative free cash flow. Um, and that was over... Um, over over $9 billion. Now, in the first quarter and second quarter of 2017, that has improved a bit. So as a whole, these operators were free cash flow negative by about $6 billion, and that's sort of roughly the same for, for the second quarter of 2017. There were um, 
some of that uh, positive free cash flow went down or some less operators had positive free cash flow, but at the same time, less operators had um, negative free cash flow as well. So it sort of worked out that we're, we're in that um, negative $6 billion range at the moment. Now, if we switch gears and we look at capital expenditures, um, we can see that those have also grown. So as capital expenditures grow, uh, and this is important to talk about, is that the capital expenditures are a component of how much these operators are spending. So in order to um, advance technologically and to drill more wells and to increase your productivity, you do have to spend money um, to drill and complete wells. So if we look at those expenditures from the first quarter of 2016 to now, they've really grown. So um, they were about 12, the capital expenditures were about 12 billion in the first quarter of 2016. Uh, that dropped a little bit to around nine and a half billion dollars in the third and fourth quarters of 2016. And then it really, really grew in the fourth quarter of 2016. So capital expenditures grew to 18 billion in the fourth quarter of 2016. Um, and that has since come down just slightly in the first quarter of 2017. Capital expenditures were about 16 billion. And in this last quarter, they were about 17 billion. So that's a lot of money to be spending. Um, and that's, that's uh, this fact that factors into that free cash flow. That concludes today's podcast. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening today. I greatly appreciate it. Please share this with your friends um, and folks interested in, in learning about the industry. If you're interested in some of those numbers, please check out the website for our podcast. We will post some of those charts uh, with the figures I was just talking about on our website. Now, just a, a pitch or an explanation on Hedgeware um, to let you know, it is fully interactive. It is available on PCs as well as Android and iOS mobile devices. The data will be refreshed free, frequently during earning, each earnings season as financial results are available or as they come out, so it'll be updated um, quarterly, so four quarters a year. During this time, we'll provide email alerts and analysis of hedging data and other relevant info, so this will be done each quarter. So look for slides um, on this podcast page that cover some of the data we just talked about, and please email um, email us at PetroNerds. Go to our, our, our contact link on our website um, if you are interested in this podcast or want to talk about it or would like to schedule a demo um, for the Hedgeware product. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you very soon.